Good morning, everyone. The words that I would like to call your attention to this morning are in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. And I will be reading verses 15 through 26. John chapter 4, verses 16 through, excuse me, 15 through 26. Hear the word of God. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have spoken well. I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. In this you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, or is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, which is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I that speak to you am he. This is wonderful words from our Lord Jesus Christ to this Samaritan woman. And if you remember... Now we've been, I think, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 4. I think this is our third week. And uh, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria to speak to this woman. And what he spoke to her about, we were just to summarize, that entire dialogue was living water. The gift of living water that he would give and now as their conversation progresses, Jesus, he's really putting into display what John the Baptist said about him. So not, not only what John, but John the Baptist said, but what it says in this gospel. You could say it three ways. The bride is coming, excuse me, the bridegroom is coming for his bride. That's what John the Baptist said in chapter 3, verse 29. Or the way he says it here in John chapter 4, Jesus is now harvesting. As he says to his disciples, he says, lift up your eyes, the field are white, they're ready 
for harvesting. And what he's doing is he is harvesting. Or the way that Jesus says it in John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And that's the same language that's used at the beginning of chapter 4 where Jesus, where it says that Jesus must go through Samaria. So what Jesus is doing now, he is gathering his people to himself. And uh, pertinent for every one of us who's listening is what kind of person or what kind of people does Jesus gather to himself? Well, you have one picture on, on one side, you have Nicodemus, who was formerly religious, but inwardly he was filled with dead men's bones. He was dead in trespasses and sins. And now you have this woman who externally is sinful. She is a sinful woman. She is an adulteress, as Jesus tells us. But yet Christ must come for her also. He did come for her. He came to give her eternal life. And now we fit anywhere, all of us who are listening, fit somewhere within that spectrum between Nicodemus and between this woman. And Christ comes to save men and women just like us. Men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So far in the discussion, it seems like the woman is missing Jesus' point. The Lord was promising something spiritual. He was promising to give her living water. Look at her reply to his offer in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come here to draw. She's, she is kind of picking up what Jesus is saying, and she wants what he's offering. But what she thinks he's offering is uh, palpable. Right? It's this... Uh, some actual water that he gets from somewhere that will quench her physical thirst and not only will it immediately quench her thirst but since she'll have it she won't have to keep coming back to the well to draw water she's thinking and so Jesus is speaking to her spiritually and she's thinking about satisfying her, her physical passions thirst. And one other thing, shame. Listen to what she says. She says, neither come here to draw. Necessity forced her to come to the well. She had to come because she was physically thirsty. She needed water. And this well provided living water. It was a spring fed. So she has to come here because necessity forces her. But as one author puts, something else was pleading against the toil. She didn't want to be at this. She didn't want to come to the well. And it wasn't the physical labor. It was shame. It was shame. And here are four reasons why I think it was shame. The first is in verse 6, John chapter 4, verse 6. And when Jesus arrived at, at the well, it was the sixth hour which was the height of the day, noon time. And depending on the time of the year, as I said before, it was either hot or it was really hot. 
This wasn't the time usually when women would come to draw water. They'd usually come later in the day where it was a lot cooler. And they would come together as a group for safety, for discussion. They'd bring their children with them. Some of them would even bring their animals and uh, feed them from the well, give them fresh water from the well. So she's coming at a time which is, which is not common, and she's coming by herself, which really wasn't safe. Next, the way that she says it, she says, neither come here to draw. And when Jesus responds to her, what Jesus says is, bring your husband and come here. And he uses the same language that she uses. She doesn't want to come here, but he says to her, get your husband and come here. Next, of course, which really brings this entire issue of shame to the forefront is that she lies to Jesus. She says to him, I have no husband. Now that's true. She doesn't. But you can so, you can, you can use the truth to lie. And that's exactly what she does. Because she doesn't want to deal with the issue, which is her adultery. She is currently living with a man who is not her husband. And she has had five marriages. In divorce has become so common, uh, driving around, you can see, I, I've seen billboards uh, that say, you know, $400 divorce. You ever seen those? And they tell you the, how, how much it'll cost you. 400 bucks, $500, you could get divorced. Divorce is so common, a marriage is counted so cheaply. I mean, you even see it, of course, in the way that our government now is pushing the entire idea of, and has been for a substantial period of time, in legitimizing a, a homosexual marriage, right? It, it, there's a very low view of what marriage is in our culture. At this point in history, it was held and esteemed highly. So this woman really is, she's ashamed. And she's ashamed because of her sin. She lies to Jesus. But listen to what he says to her. And he picks, of course, he picks up on her lie because he knows this woman. He knows her as, not that he knew her, you know, but he's God. So he knows her. So in verse 17, he says, and he, and he says this twice. At the beginning of the verse, thou hast well said. And then at the end of the verse, thou hast said truly. You have said truly. You spoke truly. He, so he kind of brackets what he's going to say when he says, you have spoken truly. You, you actually, you, you told me the truth, although you tried to lie to me. And what is the truth here? In saying that you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he whom you have now is not your husband. Five failed marriages and one adulterous relationship. 
the outline of the passage really falls in this, uh, the way that I see it. Verses 16 through 18, sin. Verses 19 through 24, worship. And verses 25 and 26, hope. So here, sin. And he, he deals with the morality of this woman. Really, he deals with her sin. And Jesus, in doing this, wants to show her her true need. This woman is thirsty. And of course, she's coming to draw water from a well. But there is a thirst in this woman that is insatiable. And through the law, what Jesus is attempting to do is to bring her to a knowledge of sin, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3. In, in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul also says the same thing. It is through the, through the law that a knowledge of sin comes. And what Jesus is doing is he is applying the law here. In Romans 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And what Jesus is doing is he is applying the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And uh, as one author put it, he is lancing this boil. He's pressing hard on this woman. This is not some peripheral sin. This is a sin that it really identifies who she is and the way that she lives her life. And Jesus is pressing hard on this woman with regards to this issue. Now, most people will come to this passage and, and uh, use it as a way of this is how we should use evangelism. We should use the law in evangelism, and I absolutely agree with that. Uh, the text that I read and Jesus' example here are terrific, but Jesus is doing something more because Jesus is applying the law, but he is simultaneously revealing something to this woman and he, as he does it. He's revealing that he knows her. As it says in John 2.24, he did not commit himself to the people because he knew all men. Or in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, where it says, I am, he, I am he who searches the mind and the heart. He knows us fully. Not only this woman, but every person. Because he is God. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He is the judge of the living and the dead, and he knows everything about us, even today. Christ sees, Christ knows all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your deeds, the things that you do, the sins that you commit in secret, he sees. The sins that you commit or the way that you live when you're, when you're not around church people, Jesus knows. The things that you do when you're not around your wife, 
the things that you do when, when you don't think your husband is home or when he's not home or when your parents aren't watching. He sees them all. And he knew this woman. Adultery was, was allowed during this time, but there were restrictions, and a Jewish woman could not divorce her husband. So her divorces were not something, they, they, it wasn't something that she initiated. Now, uh, commentators and preachers pose, you know, a myriad of, 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 of reasons why maybe, you know, um, she would pay off her husbands to divorce her. And they say all these things, but I think the passage, uh, what Jesus says, it's clear. It was adultery. This woman was so much given over to, this, to the sin of adultery that five men had divorced her. And she, she didn't, you know, she's looking to satisfy her lusts so she continues to pursue sexual sin she was a serial adulteress she was looking to satisfy her lusts her sinful lusts you could say it another way when when we pursue sin and then when we pursue pursue particular sins. You see, lost people, they envision themselves a, a particular way, and it always is in relationship to their sin. So you could go through the Ten Commandments, and the sin that they're given over to the most categorizes them. It sort of gives them their identity. right? So a covetous man... He's, he's, he may not walk up to you and say, I'm a covetous man. You might not even be able to see it. But if you had the, the, the view that God does, you would see it in the way that he spends his money, in the way that he spends his, his time, in the way that he gives himself to possessions, how he thinks about them and lusts after them. And how he hates it when other people do better than he does. Or when his friend gets a new car. Or when his friend buys a new house. Or whatever it is. He's just constantly desiring those things. And that's what sin does. Why? Because, so that's looking at it negatively. But the reason is, of course, because of our fallenness. And in our fallenness and in our sinfulness, we have a great need. And when we refuse to come to the light, when we refuse to come to him who can give us living water, we will turn to broken cisterns to try to quench that thirst. And we do it by pursuing sin. And that's what this woman was doing. So what Jesus does is he exposes it. He brings that out in the open. For us to come to God rightly, we have to come, we have to be confronted with our sin. Now, when we do that, of course, we, we will not be able to do it like the Savior, of 
discourse, his eloquence is unmatched, and the way that he applies the scripture is unlike the way that any of us do it. And we could do it wrong. So uh, it takes great patience, much prayer uh, to do this. If we are uh, seeking to save the lost. But this is the way. It's, it's the way of repentance. Now, it, here's a very important point, too, that we have to remember. That Jesus is making a claim here that tends to slip right past us. We, don't, we're, we're, we, don't, we tend not to catch it because we've read this story so many times. But what Jesus is doing is not just convicting this woman of sin, but he is offering her forgiveness. He is making a claim that he can forgive her. He can give her something that can satisfy her thirst. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not just publicly shaming this woman. That's not, that's not what he does. So he offered her living water, and she really didn't get what he was talking about, but sort of exposed herself. She exposed her own heart. Yeah, I'm thirsty, and I don't want to come here and get water, right? And uh, I don't want to tell you why I don't want to come here to get water, but I don't want to come here. And then he brings up her sin. And I can, in essence, he's saying, I can give you what you have been looking for in your sin. I can give that to you. So he's making a claim that he can forgive her sins. And this is an amazing claim. It's absolutely amazing. I love uh, the way that C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this. And he says, What should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden, and who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money. If somebody walked up to you in the store and uh, said, uh, you know, in ninth grade you stole $25 from your mother's purse, I forgive you. You'd be taken back a little bit. But um, how could this man, whom I have not sinned against, forgive me? Who is he that he can forgive me? This is what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He doesn't say, uh, let's go find your five other husbands and the guy you're shacking up with so that we can fix the problem and then I'll forgive you. He's saying to this woman, I'll forgive you. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he were the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. The astounding thing about confessing your sins to God is this, is that 
He knows them already. And he stands waiting to forgive. They're not a secret to him. The the things that you think you did that nobody knows, he knows all of them and is still offering forgiveness to sinners. It's not a surprise to him when you, when you say to him, I, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I've, I've lied in these ways and I've stolen in these ways. I've, I've committed adultery in my mind or with my body and with this person. He's not surprised. He knows. He knew this woman was a sinner and offered forgiveness freely. That's, that's how he deals with us. That's how he deals with us. And the woman perceives this. She realizes now that she's not just talking to an average Jew. Something else is going I'm talking with somebody who knows things about me that he shouldn't know. Most people take this and they say, well, she, now she's changing the subject. Because he was talk, touching on her sin, and, and she wants to talk about something else. So uh, she's trying to distract, and it's like in evangelism when you're talking to people. No. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. You're not supposed to know that. How is it that you know this about me? She's not changing the subject here. She, she, now, she's engaging him. In conversation, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's not changing the subject because she doesn't want to deal with her sin. On the contrary, she's now passing from somebody who was skeptical and didn't understand, and now she's stepping closer and acknowledging that you're a prophet. You have shown me that you are a prophet by the things that you are revealing to me. Do you see the fruit of her interaction with Jesus now? She is actually confessing her sins to him when she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's saying to him, you're right about me. And you know me in a way that no other people ought to. And she takes the posture now of a disciple. And she's asking him about religious worship. And in a a way, uh, you could take uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25, and structure this passage. If you remember there, Jesus is talking about people who come into the church and speaking in tongues and and all this other stuff. Uh, And and translators and all of that. Uh, Paul is talking about those things. And he says that it's better to speak in a known language when outsiders are, are in the church. He says because the secrets of their hearts are revealed. And that's exactly what happened in the conversation with with Jesus. He reveals the secrets of her heart. 
and falling down on his face, he will worship God. And now that's what she's talking about. I'm not saying that Paul is commenting on this passage. I'm just saying that that passage serves in a really good way to structure this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman. So her heart is revealed. She falls down on her face to worship God and report that God is truly among us. That's what she's going to do when this conversation finishes and his disciples come. She's going to go report to other people. Hey, come meet a man who told me everything I've ever done. She takes the posture of a disciple now. He has revealed her heart to her. Now she's going to ask her, ask him about something that would be absolutely pertinent to her. This is not some side discussion. When he first shows up what does she, and, and talks to her, what does she say? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. I mean, again, right? Another issue that was crucial for who she was, her identity, which was her false worship. And the contrast that existed between true worship and her false worship. And she brings it up and she asks, you're a prophet. So who else am I going to ask? I'm going to ask this man who has revealed the secrets of my heart. Calvin put it this way. He says, repentance is the commencement of true docility. And now the woman is docile because she is repentant. And she has confessed her sins to him. Repentance opens the gate or the door to the school of Christ. It prepares men and women to then sit at Jesus' feet. So she asks him about worship. She asks him about worship. And she wants to know, do we worship here or in Jerusalem. There's no dissimulation with this woman. She, she's, she's not just making this up now and trying to change the conversation. We could learn something from this woman at this particular point. You have this woman who had five husbands, a woman of Samaria, basically an unbeliever. And when she comes to repentance, what is she concerned with? She's concerned with worship. She's concerned not only with worship, but she's concerned with the theology of worship. She, she wants to know. And where am I now to go to offer God praises? How am I to do this? If, if that's not essential to the way that you live, there's something that you've misunderstood about the Christian life. If worship isn't essential to your identity, to who you are, worshiping God, as Jesus is going to say, in spirit and in truth, there's something wrong with the brand of Christianity that you have. I hate not being able to gather rightly with God's people. So, and you should too. Not because I do, but because worship is essential to the Christian. She shows that immediately. 
confesses her sins. I want to know about right worship. But how do, how do I worship this God? Where do I go? Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she says. And now uh, she could more than likely, I think she's referring to Abraham and Jacob. In, in Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abram passes, he's not, his name is not yet changed yet. He passes through the place of Shechem and the Lord appears to him and he builds an altar there. Uh, to the God who appeared to him. And he worshiped there in that region. Jacob himself, who, remember she said, Jacob our father gave us this well. When he was coming back into the land, he met with his brother Esau. He lets his brother Esau go ahead. He's, uh, he's going uh, slowly and he visits the city of Shechem. And what does he do there? He erects an altar and called that place El El. Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. This is who I worship. And he worshiped there in that land. So, so as I said last week, the Samaritans had the Pentateuch. And the, the oldest copy, physical copy of the Pentateuch that we have in existence is the Samaritan Pentateuch. But they only used those five books. So they, they wouldn't have known, really, Maybe they did, of course, in their interaction, but they didn't believe that the rest of the scriptures were inspired like the first five books of Moses. So they would not have adopted those things that were in those texts. And they just thought that, well, they worshiped here. They erected, you know, uh, uh, shrines and, and altars in this land. We will do the same. That's how we're going to worship God. So she's asking about that. And she says, but y'all worship in Jerusalem. And of course, that's because of the progress of Revelation. There's more. The five books of Moses are part of the Word of God. There's more. And God even said in Deuteronomy, He said, take heed to yourself that you do not offer burnt offerings in every place that you see fit, but in the place which the Lord chooses. And then in Chronicles, we know what place He chooses. He chooses Israel. In Chronicles chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Um, and there you have, of course, the dedication of the temple and all those things going on. A rehearsal of those things anyway. So, th this was a great distinction between them. Their, their particular places of worship. And now, this is, this is something that's important uh, for us to grasp here is that we have the tendency to shield ourselves from what the Bible teaches by the example of those who came before us. So we'll have the tendency to say, well, this is how, you know, this, this, this is how we've always done church. So why, why are we going to change it? You know, these are, these are our traditions, and these are our customs, and this is how things have always gone on. You know, the, the, the men in this church have always been a particular way, and the women a particular way, and we've always interacted with our community in a particular way, and we've always worshipped here, and we seek to shield ourselves from responsibility, from growth, from our duty to, to search the scriptures 
but because we've got a particular way of doing things. And we can't allow that to be a cloak for our errors, for our sins. Traditionalism decimates churches. I mean, there's a, right. we have a rich tradition that is handed down to us as Christians, a true, true, true tradition in the most biblical sense. Uh, Paul uses that terminology. But traditionalism kills churches, absolutely decimates them, because there's, there's no desire for growth and for understanding, because this is how the fathers have done things. We must work to root out tradition for tradition's sake. We must always return to the scriptures. And of course, this is what the woman is asking about. And how does Jesus, I love how Jesus responds to her, of course. And there's one part of the response I think that's very pertinent because she brings up the father. And look at the way that Jesus responds to her in turn. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither, neither on this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the, the Father. There's, there's a greater priority. He's, you see how Jesus is constantly in the conversation mirroring her language to help her come along with him. Give me water so I don't have to come here. Go get your husband and come here. Even the whole... Uh, a discussion around the well. She's coming to get water. Hey, give me some water. I can give you water that will satisfy your thirst forever. She says, oh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And he says, there's going to come a time when worship to the Father will be offered in only one way, in spirit and in truth. And really, is unifying all of worship to the one true God, of course. Christ's answer is now set down. And the first thing he says to her is, believe me. I perceive that you're a prophet. And now he says, he says to the woman, believe, believe now what I'm going to have faith in what I am going to say to you. To be a disciple, to come into the school of Christ, one must believe. If you do not believe, you won't understand what I'm saying to you, woman. Believe me. And now what he does is he sets out three types of worship. Three types of worship. Two of these were already in place. The worship of the Samaritans, the worship of the Jews, and there's a third kind of worship that he talks about, where God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Um, C.S. Lewis, again, I, I've been reading Mere Christianity, and he's just, uh, C.S. Lewis has got his problems. You know, he wrote good kid stories, and uh, he's written some things that are very perceptive, but he's got his problems theologically. But I've been reading Mere Christianity, and, uh, you know, uh, he's contagious in a good way. And, and he says this, that what God has done with man in light of the fall is he's left us first with our conscience right? So all people know 
right from wrong. And throughout history, they've been trying really hard to obey that sense of right and wrong. So, you know, uh, one of the brothers was, was telling us during group night, he, wit- you know, he witnessed to uh, uh, an atheist, and the atheist was reading some, uh, the Hindu or Buddhist, some kind of book like that. Why is he an atheist? Why? Why is he doing that? He's got some sense of right and wrong. There is some sense in every person of this, and that's their conscience. A second thing that God has done, C.S. Lewis says um, that he sends them, he doesn't mean real dreams, he's good dreams. And he doesn't mean like dreams, that, not that kind of dream. But these, uh, there are, as it were, false religions all over the world. What, what are they doing in those false religions? They're trying to connect to God somehow, but poorly. Uh, idolatrously, in their own fashion, however they want. How does Paul say it to uh, those who are at the Areopagus? He says to them, um, let me find it. I have it here somewhere. He says, "As uh, for as I was passing through, and this is in Acts chapter 17, and my tablet overheated again. Pa- Paul is passing through the Areopagus, and he says, As I was passing through, I noticed an inscription to the unknown God. Well, who's he talking to? They're not even Jews. They're straight up pagans. They had a pantheon of gods. He sees all the gods. They they had so many gods that they had one that was called the unknown God just in case they missed one. Unbelievers have this sense And therefore, they try to conjure up worship, mysticism, all kinds of error. Now, the the Samaritans at least had some basis for worship, but it was incomplete. They had the Pentateuch, and they rejected true worship because they rejected all of the Scriptures. Now, there is a third way, right, that God has worked in history, and that is particularly with the Jewish people. And Lewis writes it this way, describing his dealings with the Jewish people, the, uh, God's dealings with the Jewish people. He says, he selected one particular people and spent several centuries, centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him, and that he cared about right conduct. Those people were the Jews, and the Old Testament gives an account of the hammering process, that process of teaching them who he was. So Jesus describes really these, these uh, he's describing three ways of worship. He doesn't really address the issue of conscience, but that's for context, of course, to, what Lewis was saying. So there's two kinds of worship. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And he refers to this worship as false worship. He says, you worship what you don't know. That's what you're doing. You're worshipping a God you don't know. You don't know him. What you're doing here is idolatrous. 
that's what our the people that we know who are uh, Roman Catholics, who are Muslims, Seven Day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, churches that preach a false gospel, liberal, liberal, quote unquote, Christian churches, uh, people who are going to the synagogue every Saturday. They're worshiping what they do not know. They're not really worshiping God. That, that worship is not genuine worship. Now consider, the, the, this is Christ speaking to these people, to this woman, and of course speaking to us. This is not insensitive or harsh. Those are his words. He says, you worship what you don't know. The others are the Jews. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews or out of the Jewish people. And the reason why he says this, of course, is because all of Jewish worship was in some sense or another pointing to true worship that would eventually come. The third kind of worship that he's talking about. And he says that it, it, it's coming. This third kind of worship that Christ refers to does away with. Of course, it does away with the first because it's false. And it does away with the second because the second was only typical. What Christ is doing, in essence, is teaching what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2 that Jesus Christ comes and takes down the wall of separation. The wall that separated Gentiles and Jews has been stripped and torn down and worship by Jews and Gentiles can be offered to God together in one place with no distinctions because Christ has come. And in doing this, of course, he compares this first kind of corrupted worship with, with, um, with biblical worship, and it has to do with knowledge. The Jews had and have in the Old Testament a true knowledge of God can be gained from there. Yet now, with the coming of the New Testament, that knowledge is incomplete Yet at the time when Jesus is talking to the woman, those were the scriptures. So they had the true knowledge of God. The Samaritan idea of God was completely false. They thought he was corporeal, that he had a body and that he was localized, that he was a God or a deity of a particular region. And we saw this in 2 Kings chapter 17. Because uh, he sent lions into the land, and what do they do? They, they call the king, and they say, hey, send us some priest that was here because the God of this land is angry. And they continued to worship idols anyways. You can review that in Second Kings 17. They really didn't know God. Their, their entire form of worship was uh, just foolish ideas. That's what Paul calls idolatrous worship in Ephesians 4.17. They were worshiping what they did not know. The Jews, they had a true knowledge of God, not an opinion, because they had the Scriptures. 
they knew that uh, these are believing Jews, right? This is the, the Pharisees aren't in this category. Because those who truly worship God knew that heaven and earth cannot contain him. The, the reason why we worship here is not because God is stuck here, but because he told us to worship here. God instructs us on how we ought to worship. So there was great gain, as Paul says, in being a Jew, because to them was committed the oracles of God. They had the scriptures, Romans 3, 2. And most importantly, in Romans 9, 5, he says that Christ came according to the flesh, who is God over all and blessed. So true knowledge of God was possessed by the Jewish people exclusively because, or salvation is of the Jews, because they had the scriptures, and salvation in, in, the, in, the, in the essential sense, because Christ would come from the Jewish people. And the Samaritans really had uh, mingled and mixed what was in the Pentateuch with idolatry. But then he says, but the hour is coming. And this is all, again, in informing this woman. She perceives that he's a prophet. So now what he's doing, what is he doing? He's bringing her into the school of discipleship. The way that you worship is idolatrous. You don't know what you're doing. What the Jewish people have in their scriptures is the right way to worship God. At that point in history, now with the adding of the New Testament, you need the entire canon to be instructed in worship. That's a point for us so that you don't leave here saying all I need is you know, the Old Testament. No, we need the new. But at that time, when he's talking to the woman, that's what they had. They had the, the Old Testament. And there, a true knowledge of God was revealed, but not only that, the Messiah would come from the Jewish people. So they had salvation, in essence, of the Jews, and that's what he means. But now there's a new kind of worship, a worship that is superior. And it is appropriate this kind of worship. Why? Well, first and foremost, because God is the Spirit. And that's how we ought to worship Him, with, with our spirit. Just as the worship of the Jewish people was superior to the Samaritans, Christian worship is superior to that of the Jewish people. The worship of the Jewish people was tied to, bod to bodily rites, and that's R-I-T-E, rites, uh, S, of course, R-I-T-E-S, right, bodily rites, which bodily rituals. There, there, were, there were bulls, there were goats, there were laverns, candles, right? There were all of these bodily uh, things, physical things, a particular place. So there were all of these bodily rites. And there would be a time, as the author to the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews 9.10, a time of reformation, where worship would substantially change. Why? Well, second reason, because the worship of the Jews was all symbolic. It was, it was all symbolic. All of those types and shadows, they pointed forward to a reality. And the reality is Christ. So, so 
here's here so uh, a sneak peek into my theology that's why I don't think that we will ever return to Jewish worship I don't why the reality has come Christ has come why would we go back to worshiping at a temple and sacrificing animals makes no sense It goes against the entire book of he- entirety of the book of Hebrews. So, all of that worship was symbolic. The sacrificial victim, right? So, so you think of Old Testament worship in light of Psalm fifty-one. Psalm fifty-one, verses sixteen through seventeen: sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a broken and a contrite heart. That's the essence of the passage. Because such sacrifices, like the bulls and the goats and everything else that they sacrifices, that they sacrifice, they were pleasing to God, but they were pleasing to God as symbols of the true victim, of the true sacrifice. It, it was all typical. So God received it because that's how he instructed the people. But the bull did not wash away one sin. Not a one. Because it pointed forward to the coming of Christ and to the worship that would be offered to him. And since God works in history and Jesus was coming and would be born the exact same minute God wanted him to be, he gave his people these tokens and these signs that all pointed forward to him. And that's why Jesus says that the Jewish worship, it's going to be put away. There's going to come a time where where it, it will not be necessary. He is giving this woman a world class theology class here. She believed he was a prophet. That's why he says to her, believe me. Don't stay where you are. Now, now, now come deeper and believe what I am saying to you. Trust me. Have confidence in what I'm saying. The distinctions that you have in your mind and the distinction that the Jewish people are making, they're coming to an end. They're coming to an end in me. Remember, chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. That's what true worship is about. And he says in spirit and in truth. And of course, this is the character of true worship. The character of true worship. It's spiritual in in the sense of um, a fervency of spirit or a fervor of spirit. Here he's not so much talking about the Holy Spirit, although of course we need the Holy Spirit in our worship, but he means that worship is spiritual. It's not just traditionalism, and it's not just external and formal, like you know, hypocrisy. Every church that you go to has a liturgy, right? They have like things that they do, and some people don't like that word. You call it an order of service if you want. Every church has that, right? So you come in, they might do a greeting, they might do a call to worship, and so they, got a, they have a structure. But the life of the service of worship is not that structure, but the word of God by which he comes to his people and he empowers and enables them 
not only to believe, but to live lives that are that are that are uh, pleasing to Him. So worship must be in spirit. It must be right. The language that we use now, worship must be real. Worship must not be hypocritical. And of course, this is uh, that that was the essence of apostate Judaism, just the form. We have a form of worship. And Jesus is saying to her, no, worship must be true. It must be spiritual. And worship must also be in truth, which means it must be guided and instructed by the truth of God's word. There must be no pretense in worship. And Calvin put it this way, all good intentions, as they are called, are struck by this sentence that God must be worshipped in spirit and truth, as by a thunderbolt. For we learn from it that men can do nothing but err when they are guided by their own opinion without the word or command of God. To, to, to have God's people do things in worship to him that he does not call us to in the Bible is to bind people's conscience to worshipping God in a way that he didn't ask to be worshipped in. You might want to do that privately, right? You could do, you could do, right? There's no passage that says that you, you can't do prayer walks. You want to walk around and pray? Get your steps in, right? Get your 10,000 steps every day. Praise God. And I'm certain that would be pleasing to him. There's no issue with that, right? But we can't have a service. On Sunday, we're going to prayer walk, Woolworsing, so that God could spiritually knocked down the walls of Woolworsing like he did in Jericho. No, I can't. I would be binding your conscience to do something in worship that God does not ask you to do. For, he says, the Father is seeking such to worship him. People who worship in spirit and in truth, fervently, really, truly, and according to his word. This is the only way that God is to be worshipped. And there are many passages, of course, that, uh, that teach this truth. So in Isaiah chapter 29, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their lips and their hearts are far from me. Right? That's a, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's not how we're to worship God. We're to worship God as he says in Isaiah 66, verses 1 through 2. He says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hands have made. And all those things exist from my hand. All those things exist. But on this one I will look on him who is poor and a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That is the posture of worship. That is what worshiping in spirit and truth is all about. That kind of contrition. It's the penitent sinner that says, God, be merciful to me. And God takes pleasure in those who fear him. And our prayers are delightful to him. You see? So, uh, sin, right? Worship, and now hope, right? Hope. The woman says to Jesus in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. And I think this, I think, I think, I don't know this. The Greek text doesn't tell me this. But I think 
this is how she said it. She said it just this way. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming, which is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. I think she said it like that. Because I think what she's doing is she's, she's making a statement, but she, she's really asking him a question. And the question that she's asking is, and I think she's leaning towards, he's going to say yes to me. She's asking him, are you the Messiah? Because the way that he answers her is, I who speak to you am he. Exactly what she's been longing for. He gives it to her right there. She, what, what she's doing here is she is confessing her faith in him, but she's doing it timidly. The same way that she confessed her sin. I perceive that you're a prophet. And here she's confessing our faith, her faith, but she does it in a really timid way by stating who he is. And really, the way that she does it is, is she quotes the Pentateuch. And this would have been one of the central passages in the uh, Samaritan's theology of the coming prophet of the Messiah. And it's in Deuteronomy 18.18. In Deuteronomy 18.18, God made this promise. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And that's in essence what she's asking is, are, are you this one? Is that who you are? She's saying, all this time we've been talking about living water, spiritual water, and I'm dying of thirst here, and you know it. Because I'm living in all kinds of sin, trying to satisfy my desires. And I think you're the one who can satisfy those desires. Am I right here? Basically what she's saying. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. He says, you got it. That's right. Now you've spoken truly, truly. Because you see who I am. And all this in a conversation with this woman. See, he didn't reveal to himself to her all at once. But he brings her step by step to a knowledge of himself. He begins with this metaphor, right? Spiritual water. And then he confronts her with her sin. And then he instructs her in right worship. And he's, ba he's revealing to this woman what he is going to accomplish in his mission. Which he hasn't done to his disciples yet even. As far as we know. Because he's saying to her that this distinction between Jews and Gentiles, it's, it's being stripped away. And the way that he says, the way that worship is coming, this third way, the new way of worship, Christian worship, he, it's going to strip those things away and the two people are going to become one. He says, you're going to worship the Father. That means that he, we have a common Father. Right? That Jews... And Samaritans have a common father. There's no distinction. There's one father. In the book of Proverbs, it says that words appropriately spoken are like apples of gold on beds of silver. 
And that is exactly what we have here. Jesus leads this woman little by little to the acknowledgement and to the truth that he is the Messiah. And he does this today. That's what he's doing. As we read the scriptures together, as we meditate upon these words, he is declaring to us this same truth. And if we are spiritually thirsty, all we have to do is receive Christ. Believe in him, as he says to the woman. Believe me. Confess your sins to him, as the woman does. I perceive you are a prophet. And God will give you living water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. We thank you for this portion of scripture, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to grow in our knowledge of you and in our worship of you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.